Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the 905er podcast with myself, Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. And we'll get straight into it today with our interview with San Grewal from The Pointer, which is a news website and podcast in Brampton, Mississauga. San Grewal is uh, the founder of The Pointer and a journalist who has won numerous awards for his investigative work over a 20-year career in journalism. Prior to founding The Pointer, he worked for the Toronto Star, where much of his journalism was focused on the Peel region and other parts of the GTA. We asked San on today to talk about the the particular challenges that Peel's been facing recently, and we think you'll enjoy the the wide-ranging conversation that we had with him about the importance of the 905 and the changing face of journalism in our region. Hi, uh, San Grenwell. Thanks so much for uh, coming on to the podcast today. Uh, Joel and I have been wanting to speak to you for a while because we're we're really huge fans of the quality of the work you're producing uh, in uh, Brampton and Peel at the Pointer. And we're going to get into the specific of what's been going on in Peel recently, but I thought maybe you could start off just by describing uh, what the Pointer is and uh, how it came into being. Yeah, thanks for having me. The Pointer is an online news publication. We launched in 2018. I've been a journalist for about 25 years. I worked at the Toronto Star for almost two decades. And for quite a bit of that time, I, I focused on the 905 region. And I was quite aware that the 905 faces a particular problem in terms of media coverage and in terms of the amplification of issues across the 905 being, you know, a part of the GTA, the greater Toronto area, where all the media is concentrated in Toronto and tends to focus on Toronto, but then it it creates the illusion or the veneer of covering the whole GTA region, residents, taxpayers, listeners, readers, um, constituents out across the 905 seldom realize you know, those that pay attention might, but a lot of readers don't really realize that they're not getting actual journalism, you know, so a lot of the coverage out of the Toronto media, they'll coverage Toronto properly, but, you know, for the almost 5 million residents of the 905, all you're getting is like police press releases, you know, crime stories, you know, a wrap up of a press conference, an odd clip from what an elected official has to say, but there's no meaty, accountability journalism, very little public service journalism, very little civic journalism, uh, almost no, you know, proper deep investigations. And considering what, you know, the 905 is where a lot of the biggest problems are, uh, many of them related to uh, land use and the the picture of, of development that's obviously tied to the availability of land. That happens to be a dynamic that predominantly exists out in the 905. There is no more land available in Toronto. It's been built out for years. There's infill and whatnot that goes on. But with all of the ongoing use of land and decisions around land use that that affects so much, that's just one of the, you know, the, the issues that um, we, we feel needs to be covered properly in the 905. And then what spills out of that are a, a whole number of different issues. Like when you look at demographic shift that's all tied to land use and growth Mm -hmm. and then when you look at demographic shift when you look at you know racial tension lack of you know representation um a lot of things we see at the school boards and in healthcare and 
local government and pretty much every institution, policing, you name it. Problems in terms of this lack of representation, you know, again, they, they're directly tied to the way these places have been planned and the rate of staggering growth that's occurred in a very short period of time, all kinds of other reasons. So for, the, for all those reasons, we, we launched in Brampton in 2018. We launched a Mississauga platform uh, in 2019. So we're in the two cities. Our plan was to launch um, in Markham and Vaughan uh, last year, but because of the pandemic, we put that on hold. We'd eventually like to go right across the 905 and the GTA and, and into other markets around Canada and maybe beyond depending on how successful we are. Mm-hmm. We're very focused. We, we don't do, you know, we don't do the light fluffy stuff. We don't do right. all pieces. We, we're not here to mouth what the politicians are saying. We're not, you know, a PR platform for the elected officials. We don't have any advertising. It's solely subscriber driven. And we serve those subscribers with pretty meaningful, deep uh, journalism investigations, a lot of data driven journalism. So it's very factual evidence-based. And that's what we're all about. That, and that kind of ties into what we've uh, we've discovered as we've been doing this. Uh, one of the, the recent episodes we had was just on how uh, your coll- your former colleague at the Toronto Star, Susan Delacourt, wrote a uh, column on how election season is in the air uh, federally, and all the odds be turning to the nine hundred five. Yet nobody talked about any of the issues that you had you had brought up just now about land land development and demographic changes and shifts and 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 the, and the like. And it seems that that happens a lot with the uh, media coverage of the 905 is that we're very important at election season, yet nobody wants to talk about these issues in between election cycles. Um, and that they're, 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 highly, they're highly complex and, high, and highly, uh, uh, they're not something you can, I think you can just kind of pass over with a, a, a casual glance. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And I think that one of the things that's crucial to understand is that the Canadian mainstream media market, so the, the large traditional legacy media landscape, it, it's very particular. You know, it's 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 a small number of players. They they tend to they often you know hire you know from within the same circle. You have the same managers and same decision makers at one outlet or one platform that have worked at another one. Uh, the, the mentality is very similar. The thinking is similar. The journalism culture in that shrinking bubble, um, it, it's very homogenous. It's very uniform. And that space was larger, you know, 20 years ago. It was, it was, a, it was a larger market, but, and it's obviously contracted for a host of different reasons. But its dynamic hasn't changed much. Even when it was much larger, when it was four or five times the size before all of the disruption began, it was still very much, you know, a very cliquey, very homogenous, very inside baseball group think, you know, type of mentality. You know, if, if, if one was doing a type of story, like then all the other platforms did it. You know, mm-hmm. if there's a news meeting and they're, they're doing, you know, a look at, you know, a particular broadsheet, all the other newsrooms have to copy what, the, what they led with, you know, right. and, you know, you'd, you'd wake up the next morning or before you went to you know to bed at night, and you'd look at the websites, and you'd look at in the morning the front pages, and they're all you know pretty much identical. And so part of that is is a focus on you know Toronto to a great extent, and Ottawa to a certain extent. But Ottawa, I would argue, doesn't really it's not covered the way 
journalism should really cover, you know, a, a nation's capital and the seat of its parliament, in my opinion. When, when you consider the decisions that are being made and the profound impact on Canadian society, you know, the governance of the Canadian people, uh, I've always sort of, you know, been incredulous over the way that, that, that Ottawa is covered by our mainstream media. And, and again, um, this Toronto focus, you know, which, which blocks out a lot of coverage, you know, if you're, if you're living right now in, in Charlottetown or St. John's or, you know, Thompson, Manitoba, or, you know, Weyburn, Saskatchewan, or Red Deer at Alberta, or, you know, Kamloops, BC, if you look at a lot of the mainstream national, you know, content and media, Th though those communities they all say the exact same thing like mm -hmm. like we get it toronto's you know about um you know what would it be about eight percent of the population and when you really think about it like toronto the former toronto like the, the part that the media really focuses on which is really bet between the don river and uh and um the humber and maybe up to the 401 yeah, that's 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 like a little over a million people. So you're looking at you know four or five percent of the population gets eighty percent of the focus and the attention and the coverage, and it kind of sets the agenda, and that's a problem. Like that, that's like you know we've seen media concentration around you know like you know France has that problem with Paris to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. You know England has that problem with London to a certain extent. Well, the UK in general, but in in my estimation, in my observation. What we see in Canada, it's 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 probably worse than most um, most countries that have the, the type of media landscape we associate with 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 a country like ours. And so, yeah, I mean, um, when you talk about the the parachuting in during the election cycle, it's a bit of a joke. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah. What what are you going to get out of a story that keeps repeating? Now, it, let's say there's an election called this year. What are you going to get out of coverage that keeps saying, oh, the 905 is the focus or, oh, the parties are really pouring their resources. You know, Jagmeet Singh was, you know, in Durham today and, you know, Aaron O'Toole was in Peel today right. and Justin Trudeau was in, you know, North York, you know, today. Well, okay, that, that, that's great. You told us where they were. You told us they've poured resources into it. You've told us there's a big battle in the 905. You've told us that all these seats, you know, these 40 odd seats are like, they're the key for the whole election. Yet, have you have you delved into like one issue that yeah. that the voters have been thinking mm -hmm. about for the last four years? Have the yeah. leaders like in in twenty nineteen we we laughed like we literally like laughed because the leaders would come into these rallies and these comp campaign stops across the nine hundred five Peel in particular. I think at one point Peel had eleven visits from the three major, no offense to the Greens and, and, the, and the Bloc, but the three major uh, candidates um, had, uh, had their leaders in Peel 11 times in about a, I think it was about a one month, like the early part of the campaign. So between the three of them, they averaged, you know, more than three, almost four visits each to Peel, you know, and it's, it's, 12, it's 12 ridings, it's 12 seats you know, six in Mississauga, five in Brampton, one in Caledon. And yet we would ask the candidates when they would stop, we would ask them about like the biggest issue, top of mind for let's say Mississauga and Brampton. Like, so for example, uh, in September of 2019, one of the worst 
mass shootings in Canadian history occurred in Malton, uh, a neighborhood of Peel, uh, of Mississauga. And uh, there were seven people that were shot. Uh, one died, tragically, a teenager. And, you know, like over 100 bullets were fired in a, in a horrendous, you know, I hate to use the term, I'm not going to use the term, but in a, in a style of shooting that was organized and premeditated and planned, it was a targeted, um, organized type of, of crime that, that completely devastated the entire community and had many people across Peel just reeling. And, and gun violence was already a problem. And when we tried to ask the candidates basic questions about their policies around funding, you know, um, initiatives to, to counter gun violence, to counter organized crime, to, to counter problems with youth, to counter a whole, they, they didn't even have the foggiest clue. They hadn't even formulated policies properly. They, they came up with some money that they were going to throw at it and said, oh, right. well, let the municipalities and the local police forces figure it out. You know, and, and it just showed you how little attention they actually spent like thinking about what was going on. Like, I'll give you, well, I'll, I'll let you guys ask me a question, but I'll tell you later about the, four, the 413 highway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we're, we're well aware of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it, and what we're learning as part of doing, doing this podcast is how much the, the different 905 region cities have in common. And yet we know very little of each other. Like, I, you know, I've lived in Burlington for nearly 20 years now. What I know about uh, Brampton, I could probably write on the back of an envelope. I mean, and I have learned that in the last few months. Um, because of that lack of uh, uh, news coverage, and yeah, the the the, the all the parties know that they have to win this region because it's one of the few areas in in Canada that really flips from party to party. Um, yeah, I I get the impression they know absolutely nothing about um, uh, you know the, the kind of what makes uh, the region tick or what so particularly the 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 uh, particularly the municipalities with the higher immigrant populations I just you know it, it's almost like a kind of mystery to them I think and I was wondering that kind of leads us into into the point about the the rollout of the vaccine in Peel that um, we had uh, Dr. Bra on a few weeks ago um, talking about, you know, the need to vaccinate in, in businesses, the need to vaccinate uh, in these, uh, you know, the people who can't take time off work, which is obviously very much a Peel issue. Um, and the government seems to be completely oblivious and is sending boxes of vaccine up the road to Kingston instead of Peel. Can you talk, talk a little bit about that? And not just that they've, the government's done something dumb, but why they've done something so obviously done when they've got a bunch of MPPs in the region. I mean, it's, it's all pretty much conservative or PC, I should say. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, there, there's, there's a little, a little wall of three NDP mm. um, MPPs in Brampton, but yeah, you're right. Six of the six in Mississauga and then the Caledon seats are all PC. So again, going back to what I'd said earlier, the, the problem that I highlighted, it's not just, it's not just in the media. What I said that 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 sort of political culture and you know journalistic culture, the the information environment, our political landscape, the the mindset around all of these uh, corners of our society that are involved in decision making and information and you know politics and uh, coverage of politics and whatnot. It's a very similar mindset. 
you know, you'll find there's a lot of crossover, former journalists working in politics, working in, you know, communications, working as advisors. Sometimes people in, in politics will go and, you know, work in the media or they'll, you know, become radio hosts or, you know, whatever. And, and it's very much, like I said, it's this, it's, it's this small little bubble and, and most of the public, like, you know, your, your IT workers and your engineers and, you know, your retail workers and your people who work in manufacturing and other, you know, um, more labor intensive segments of the economy, people who work in healthcare and people who work in, you know, transportation, all of these things, like most of the public, they're not part of that little circle, right? They're, they're busy in their day-to-day lives. They represent, you know, 95, 98% of the population who lift up our economy, who make sure that everything's running smooth, who do the jobs, the essential work, the other types of work, the white collar and blue collar functions that most people associate with, they're not keeping an eye on all of these dynamics. So when we rely on the people who are in this small little circle together, and if there's very little representation, for example, of a place like Peel, if no one not just the media that's clueless about what's going on in Peel, but the politicians, you know, are equally clueless. And while there might be um, nine PC MPPs in Peel, if if none of them have a real seat at the decision making table, right? Prabhmit Sarkaria has a portfolio, but he's not a he's not a full minister, um, and there aren't any other ministers. And I would argue. Uh, well, that's not true. Sylvia Jones. Well, yeah, sorry. Sylvia Jones is with the uh, with the Attorney General, but um, but again, you know, in in Brampton, Mississauga, in particular, um, there's there's certainly a problem with the lack of meaningful representation within the corridors of power. So when Christine Elliott and Doug Ford gather to make their decisions, why is it that Etobicoke seems to always get so much representation and shortly after Ford becomes premier, they've got a fully fun. It was already planned, but it's announced that the extension for Tobacco general hospital, it's going to be completely covered by the hospital. A couple of schools are going to be completely like redone new schools, a huge addition to one of the biggest high schools. I could go on and on and on about, you know, other things like, you know, how the, the relief line, the new proposal for the subway line, it's going to be hugely beneficial for Etobicoke, you know, in the West End and certain parts of Toronto. But where is, where are those voices for Peel, for North York, for Durham, for Halton? Mm-hmm. And here's where it goes to the way the party system is structured, the way the nomination process is structured. They don't look to places like Peel and Halton and North York and Durham for the most part. Quite often, most of those nominations are filled with by incredibly inexperienced individuals. You're like you're talking about. Um, let's take a look at Amarjot Sandu. You know, a Brampton PC MPP. He somehow gets the nomination back in 2018. And when we look at his CV, he literally we can't figure out what this guy has ever done. You know, well, he, a lot of a lot of it he, comes down to. I, I don't want to. I mean, I I, I know because I've worked uh, in the party system. Before I know a lot of it, especially in Peel and Mississauga, Brampton, Mississauga, a lot of it comes down to, you know, how can you pull out a certain ethnic group to come out and vote for you? Can, do you have ties into um, 
Wallace, you know, uh, you know, see communities or, or immigrant communities that we can encourage to, to come out and vote uh, for the party. And part of it, I think, is, is a bit of a tokenism of look at how progressive we are because we have all these, um, let's be honest, non-white uh, people on the ticket, on the conservative party, party or liberal or, or NDP party ticket, but rarely do we see them given any actual responsibility of, you know, a, as you said, a, a government cabinet portfolio or, um, or anything of cost, you know, any, any real profile that they're able to articulate the needs of, of the region. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I, I like, I look at what's happening in Peel. I mean, Peel and Toronto are kind of the epicenters of this pandemic right now. They, they you know, Doug Ford goes to the microphone and, and says, Oh, we need We want the economy to come back. We need to, to help out the economy, et cetera, et cetera. Yet, region where you have uh amazon walmart headquartered you have all these as you said these kind of the the nuts and bolts of how the economy works you know the the warehouses getting the goods to um uh to, to the stores are run by by people there um there's no effort to get that that taken care of so we can get the economy bouncing back you know that the data is showing heel is hit hard it is not it is not we're not able to clamp it down in Peel. It's, it, I don't think Peel has ever been out of a, a lockdown situation since this pandemic started. I mean, once they got into a, into a lockdown, I, I want to say like they pretty much, I, I, I may be wrong and I'll defer to a, if somebody can tell me otherwise, but I'm pretty sure they've been in a lockdown since the since, pandemic started. Since, since late November, right? It's been in lockdown right. since, since late November. So it's, it's quite a long time that it's been in this prolonged lockdown and getting back to the vaccine issue and this, this broader issue again, you know, it, it's not like jurisdictions around the world. You know, most jurisdictions have handled the pandemic in a scientific, evidence-based way where public health officials and epidemiologists, you know, the research, the clinical data, the facts, the evidence was driving public policy. We know that, you know, the States has been a joke, not, right. not the entire country, but for the most part, you know, most U.S. states have not, you know, managed the pandemic well. We know Canada is at its issues, you know, particularly certain parts of the country, a lot of other European countries, you know, certain Asian countries, we always hold up Australia and New Zealand and South Korea, Taiwan, certain jurisdictions for their sort of amazing uh, deference to, to the science and to, to the data and to the evidence and look at the benefits that they've reaped, you know, economically, it, 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 it's not really even worth talking about that, that if Ford and, and, and Mr. Kenny in Alberta and others, if they were really concerned about the, the economy from, from day one, they would have done what all of the, the, the research, you know, and the scientists and the epidemiologists and the public health teams, you know, were, were telling the leaders, the political leaders, let us make the decisions, you implement them, you, 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 you govern, we, we, we will set the tone, and then you make sure that what we have said is, is followed through and enforced, and we'll guarantee you you're going to get the best economic outcome possible. But we, we know, we don't even have to get into it, we, we know that that's the nature of politics, human frailty and, you know, human, <laughs> all kinds of human failings are involved in, in the public process, the political process. If we let science, not politics, you know, dictate things, we'd have a completely different situation right now. We all know that. It's, there, there's no point even discussing it. And I don't lay it on the feet of the, PCs, you know, necessarily in Doug Ford, because 
related to other public health issues and other non-public health issues. We saw the Liberals doing the same thing, you know, for 15 years mm-hmm. from 2003 to 2018. Like they were, they were just as bad. It's not like they were making good decisions for the 905. It's not like they were paying attention to Peel. It's not like they were enacting policies based on, you know, equity and fairness and proper funding formulas and population-based allocations. No. So we know that this is the problem, right? You know, we criticize places like China. And again, I'm going to get a little existential here, but we criticize, you know, a country like China, and it has a lot to be criticized for, right? We know its, it's human rights record is, is beyond horrendous, horrifying. And it shouldn't be, you know, held up as an example of, of very much. But, but if you look at its ability to get public buy-in to a public health crisis and to respond to it very swiftly, like building a hospital in 10 days, you know, right. in complete, you know, buy-in and compliance on very strict public health measures, we just don't have that type of a political system, yeah, right? Yeah. We, we don't have that. And, and, and banging on about it. So what the pointer does is we, we point out how egregious the inequity is, how, how Brampton on September 4th, right before the Labor Day weekend, it was a Friday, right heading into the Labor Day weekend, Premier Ford takes the podium, steps up to the microphone for his daily press conference, and he says, Brampton is broken. When you've got 3% of the population accounting for 40% of the infections, something is broken. And he's talking about Brampton, right? And at that time, Brampton was accounting for, in terms of per capita infection rates, about five to six times, you know, its infection rate was five to six times the rate that the entire province was seeing towards the end of August and going into the first couple of weeks of September. But here's my question to Mr. Ford. When he steps up to the microphone and he says, oh, Brampton's broken. Who do you think broke it? You did, Mr. Ford. You, you broke Brampton. And now you're getting up to the mic, kind of suggesting that the local leaders or something about the local dynamics and the local response was broken. No, you broke it. You and Miss Elliott, Christine Elliott, the health minister, you guys broke Brampton. You've, broke, you've broken Peel. You've created, you know, God knows how what the cost of the economic damage has been i can guarantee you there's 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 been there have been lives lost because of the way that you've failed the region of of peel you've failed the residents of brampton of mississauga you know how is it that brampton with with so doug ford is talking about brampton being broken with 40 percent of the province's cases and and five to six times the rate of infection you know in in the late summer Meanwhile, Brampton was given one testing center, one provincial assessment center was given to Brampton. Toronto got, was, was given 17. Brampton had about one quarter the amount of testing resources mm-hmm. and contact uh, tracing resources that it needed. So you've got, you've got the worst hotspot being the, also being the worst resourced jurisdiction in the whole province. And we know that that's a joke and there's no, they don't have an answer. It was just a complete failure. And then we see the vaccine rollout. The big pilot is announced. Peel is still the highest per capita area. Every epidemiologist in the province, the science table that's advising the government, they are saying, get vaccines to Peel. Focus on the hotspot. If you control the spread at the epicenter, you control the spread everywhere. You let the epicenter get out of control, 
every place gets out of control. What did they do? They ignore Peel. They didn't even include it. Of the 327 pharmacies in the original rollout for the AstraZeneca vaccine, zero in Peel. Not, not one of the, pharma, the original pharmacy rollout for AstraZeneca, not one dose mm-hmm. went to Peel. And after there was reporting on it, primarily by the pointer, mm-hmm. and then the politicians finally like figured it out, you know, then they were given some peanuts, you know, they were given, you know, a few thousand uh, to make up for the initial mistake. Meanwhile, you're losing ground to these variants of concern that are more transmissible, that spread even faster. You're losing ground to all kinds of other factors that are, are, are going to, you know, they're outpacing right. the vaccination effort. And, and I mean, you know, we can, I mean, we can criticize all we want, Um you guys, I'm sure, know about the paid sick leave issue. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. What more? What when you've when you've said everything you can do? The NDP have brought motions. They've been defeated. It's been covered. The local politicians bury their heads in their sand. They're more loyal to Doug Ford and the party, the Peel PC MPPs, than they're not loyal to their constituents who voted them in. They don't care about who the people that voted them in. They don't care about answering to the constituents that literally give them power. They care about their loyalty and their fealty to the ring. Kiss the ring. Here's the hand. I'm sitting on my throne. Kneel down before me and kiss the ring and then move on. I mean, the obvious follow-up to, to that point that you just made is, is this deliberate? I mean, is this like personal politics between the Premier and Patrick Brown? Is it just, like you say, something that, that's just inherent to our government because the Liberals were the same? Uh, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, I, I think that... Um, I think the broader, more more systemic structural issues are not personal politics. I think it's more that question of representation. So, so very very basic problems around um, funding, for example, the, the province controls education and healthcare and things like you know a lot of transportation and through some granting and and funding mechanisms involving Ottawa, it also controls a fair bit of of public transit infrastructure investment. Again, that's that's mostly through the feds and it's 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 a municipal concern, but the provinces are involved. They often uh, it's the provincial government that often um, chooses which municipal applications for federal transit funding will go forward. So direct control over healthcare, direct control over education, direct control over public health, direct control over provincial transportation and indirect control over public transit and many, many other areas of jurisdiction that Queen's Park is responsible for. However, when you look at the way the funding is allocated, like I'll give you an example of hospital beds, right? Brampton taxpayer, if, if, if you are a Brampton taxpayer and you own a property, you own a house, and you pay your property taxes, you as that Brampton property taxpayer, you are literally subsidizing the hospital beds in other communities where the per capita number of hospital beds is two to three times greater than the number of hospital beds that have to be operationalized every year, right? So when you think about a hospital bed, we, th- we tend to think of it as like a piece of infrastructure, a capital cost. We need to make this connection with the public that it's not. When we talk about a hospital bed, we're talking about the operating cost every year for all the technicians, the equipment, the diagnostic apparatus, the nurses, the doctors, 
all of the other costs of running that one bed every year. And when the province isn't willing to give a place like Brampton or Mississauga a, a per capita equal level of funding, what we see is that either the citizens of Brampton and Mississauga have to go elsewhere to another hospital, they have to travel farther, they sometimes have to wait longer if they're just going to you know, try to stick it out in Brampton. But the question is, that is not a, not a traditionally regressive way of dealing with property taxes, but you could make the argument, you'd have to twist the sort of definition of re regressive taxation policy, but you could ask the question, wait a second, if it's become systemic, then it is kind of in a way regressive because every year that Brampton taxpayer, that property owner, he's, he or she is paying the same rate the same property tax rate, maybe the rate from one municipality to another is a little bit different, but it's generally based on assessment and a mill rate. So if you're in Oakville and you just had the new Oakville Trafalgar Memorial Hospital open up a few years ago, and it gives you literally almost three times the number of operational beds than Brampton has, essentially what you're doing is you're using the Brampton property taxpayer to fund those Oakville beds. It, and if you looked at it on a fair per capita basis, so Brampton is covering all of its beds, plus a whole bunch of, you know, the percentage of beds in every other community, the equal share is not coming back to Brampton. So Oakville is on the flip side of that, they're getting a net benefit, their property tax, they are actually funding not even the full number of bed allocation in Oakville. But they're getting subsidies from other municipalities, particularly like places like Brampton, but all over the place where there's this imbalance, providing their healthcare for them. The argument is, well, Brampton residents can go to Oakville too, but we know how the healthcare system works. So when it becomes structural, when it becomes, you know, that endemic to the way, you know, these funding formulas based on population have, have, mm -hmm. are working now, and it's completely broken down, it's failed, and you've got successive governments over 25 years that have failed to like recognize this inequity. And here's why, because they know what the cost of that inequity is. But here's what I want you to think about. And any, anyone listening, here's, here's the key thing to think about. It's the province that determines growth. Yes, growth in a certain way is market driven. Anyone can move to the GTA from another part of Ontario. Anyone can move from the GTA from another part of Canada. And if you get immigration to Canada, which is set by the federal government, mm -hmm. anyone essentially eventually can, can move and settle where they want. So in that sense, you know, it's, it's, it's somewhat market driven, but it's not. We know that it's policy that determines based on land use, you know, zoning applications, you know, urban boundary, building permits, you name it. All of that is established by, by government. So it's a little bit of a, a balance between market dynamics and, and policy. So if the province has that much to do with determining that Brampton's population is going to go from 150,000 people a, a, a couple few decades ago to 700,000, 750,000 right now. And yet the, the province, you reap the benefit of all that growth. You dictate it to a certain extent. Yet when it comes to paying for it, to, to building those schools where the people are settling, to building the hospitals and the transit and everything where they're actually settling under your policy, you don't want to fund your policy. It almost sounds like I kind of bring the conversation back a bit full circle. It sounds uh, to me 
like where's the where's the champion for Milton? Um, because these are these are deep seated uh, structural issues, as you said about pr- provincial and federal policy funding allocation, uh, et, et cetera. And yet, I mean, a recurring theme amongst our, our two podcasts is the 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 lack of attention on the 905 region and these structural changes, these the the consequences of these policy decisions. It's almost like we do need kind of champions of the 905 to stand up in Queens Park, to stand up in the House of Commons uh, in Ottawa and say, no, this needs to change. We need to address this. We need funding. We need a, an actual plan, not platitudes every four years when an election comes around or, or whenever have you. And almost to start thinking together. So I'm just jumping on your point there, Joe, almost to start thinking together as a region about how do we, how do we use our muscle? Because we have huge muscle. We know that. When it comes to election time, boy, are they paying attention. But the rest of the time, Zippo. And, you know, I, I definitely think that the places like uh, uh, Brampton, Markham, I'm sure as well, are getting even rougher end of the stick. But at a regional level, it's like we have the power. Why the hell aren't we using it? Yeah, a couple of things. So I think the Milton examples are really good ones. So Milton has been, you know, a great provincial partner these last 25 years, you know, Milton is, is technically the fastest growing city in Ontario municipality. And we know that through, through, through its, its mayor's office and through regional council and Milton council, there's been a lot of cooperation. You know, Milton said, you know, not only will we accept population, not only are we willing to grow, but we're going to do it in a smart way. You know, we're not going to bring in sprawl. It's a lot of really good mixed-use development. It's a lot of it's a lot of smart growth. It's a, it's a lot of good planning principles that Milton sort of brought in and said we're not going to do you know what Mississauga did back in the '80s. We're not going to do what Brampton did in the '90s. And but we want to be rewarded for that. So Milton has been here's an example. You, you guys probably know about this. It's been saying, look, we need go train and go serve it service expansion in Milton, it's ridiculous for, for the population, you know, it's probably getting close. It's going to be getting close to 150,000 residents pretty soon. And to essentially have the go train service that it has right now, where if you don't show up in that go train parking lot at like six in the morning, you're not going to get a spot Mm -hmm. and then you're stuck and you're going to end up either having to go to another station or just driving usually to Toronto where most of them commute to, into work every day. So after years of just complete neglect, again, you know, different governments, I'm not putting it on one party, pretty much every government in power over the last 20, 25 years. And, and, and let's remember for 15 years, it was the liberals, right? So they, the liberals passed places to grow in 20, 2005. It comes into effect in 2006. That's their population growth manage, management legislation with no funding strategy behind it. So one hand has no clue what the other hand is, of government is doing. So the Ministry of Transportation, are they brought to the table when places to grow is being passed? And they are saying, okay, all the places where the growth is going to occur, we need a new go train station there. We need a new go train station there. We need increased service, new increased go train capacity. We need new schools. Is the Ministry of Education at that table saying, oh, okay, that's what places to grow look, looks like. Okay, you know what? We're going to need to devote X percent of our, our capital budget for new schools is going to have to go toward Peel because it's taking the brunt of the population growth. Ministry of Healthcare, 
or health, I should say, is the Ministry of Health at the table saying, oh, okay, that's the growth plan. We are going to have to start planning for our capital budget. Hospitals are going to have to be built where the growth is being put in. None of that was done. None of that was done. And, 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 and this is the problem, Roland, when you talk about, you know, there's regional clout, but the problem, that's not the way politics works. You know, it's all pork barreling. You know, everyone wants to get what they can for their little corner of the world. So, yeah. so those individual, the ministers, somehow the ministers, you know, look at what Del Duca tried to do when he was a minister, you know, getting, you know, uh, go train and, and transit infrastructure in his riding. Like I could go down the list of every right. minister and it's like, wow, you know, is it a surprise that like, you know, the ministers are advocating, you know, and they're in the back room. They're the ones that are, you know, in these meetings that we never even know about when the budgets are being established. They're the ones who control those decisions. Oh, the budget's coming out. We've got an election coming up. Guess what? All the ministers are going to look great going into the election and the places without real representation. I mean, at the, at the power brokers table, these are the places that get ignored. And so why Roland, while Roland, I agree with you about regional clout, until there's a process that works regionally, not individually, like riding by riding, yeah, pork, yeah. pork barrel by pork barrel. I, I don't think that we're going to see a lot of that change. But you know, what, what can change is that constituents, voters can start demanding good nominees, mm -hmm. like the best, and then demanding that, look, you know, with a little bit of a, like, look at what Niagara did. Niagara was disgusted with what was going on. A small group of citizens got together ahead of the 2018 election and said, we're going to get rid of all of these PC flunkies at the regional level who were only doing whatever, you know, their masters wanted them to do. Or maybe it wasn't, you know, the people in power at that time, but certainly through the PC party, through conservative affiliations, all of those interests had taken over Niagara region. A small group of citizens got together, really organized and sort of said, we're sick and tired of this. And they got rid of almost all, they, I think out of the 31 Niagara regional seats, they turned over 24 of them. If that same message was sent, like, like let's say next provincial election, those nine, those nine PC seats, let's say if seven of them are lost, maybe, you know, but, but let's say the PCs hang on to power, like either a weaker majority or a pretty strong minority. In either of those two dynamics, all of a sudden, instead of taking Peel for granted and much of the 905 for granted, now they start to think, hmm, the electorate is smarter than we thought. The voters are actually paying attention. There's actually new media that are doing what the traditional media have failed at for decades. So we've got new social media, what you guys are doing, what the pointer's doing, other things that are getting you know, information out to the constituents, out to the electorate. So they're getting better informed. And if, if these parties start to think, wow, there's skin in the game, there's something at stake, we need to actually service you know, those, those constituents, we need to service those ridings, then, mm. then that's the only way it's going to change. Yeah, and it's so important. It does. And I mean, I can't help mentioning your, your fantastic podcast from last week uh, about exactly what happened to those people from Niagara who've now all moved to Brampton and uh, are working for Patrick Brown. And you've done a fantastic job uh, shining the light on, on that. I mean, yeah, it, it seems like the region that we've, we've lacked both any kind of real media coverage plus, uh, plus political representatives who, who give enough of a damn to kind of say, hey, what about 
what about Brampton? What about Mississauga? Uh, rather than, well, I think I've got a fairly safe seat here. I, I, I know I've got the backing of this community or this union or this whatever. Um, yeah, until there's that fundamental shift, and it's going to depend on people paying attention to 905 News. And I know this is just like sounds like plugging ourselves, but you, the stuff that matters in this province right now is not happening in Toronto. It's it's happening right across the 905. Uh, and well, and but that the, I mean that brings it, but that brings our conversation again back full circle. Is that for years, generations, this region was underserved by the Toronto centric media. Uh, they're all, they're all the the National Post, Global Mail, Toronto Star. They're all guilty of it of not taking the time to go into the issues here. And you know that's my I, again. I think our hope is that we're going to be able to educate some people on issues that are in their backyards that that need to be addressed, and maybe hopefully start asking uh, the right questions to not to the to the politicians. The politicians are going to do what they're going to do, but we need to start asking questions amongst ourselves. What do we want? Heal, Brampton, Mississauga, Halton, Niagara. Hamilton. What do we want these places to look like? You know, what, what, how, how do we want these places to, to be livable and, and, you know, kind of we start thinking of the future and not just, oh, whatever, whatever we get thrown in, we're not, we're more than just seats to be won over every four years. And, and Joel, you know, it's not just, you know, what we want them to look like in a, in a sort of, you know, in a sense of optics or a sense of, you know, our, oh, ab- absolutely. our perception of, of these places in a more, you know, kind of obvious human kind of way. What do we want them to be in terms of the the, the future fortunes of the entire province? Like, do we? So it's it's yeah. it's the most dynamic region of the like you know Toronto. Toronto's basically established itself, right? It, it it's it's the seat of a lot of capital power. So there's tons of capital. You know, there, there's a lot of you know, decision-making influence in, in key sectors like finance and whatnot. But, but, but those, those dynamics in Toronto, they're pretty established. It, right. it is what it is. And, yeah. and it plays its part, especially in terms of capital markets and sort of the Bay Street <clears throat> scene. But when you talk about economic development for the province, this is where the future, it, it, it's all out in places like the 905, Kitchener, Waterloo, the Bay right. Area, um, even like that, places like Niagara and whatnot. But the 905, certainly, like, do you want it to be a wasteland for trucking operations and warehouses? Or given the labor force, you, you've brought in, you know, when we look at the statistics, like, I, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to sound uh, uh, snarky here, and I don't want to sound... Um, Oh, go ahead. It's okay. Yeah, go right for <laughs> go for it. <laughs> but, but but if you look at the labor dynamics in the 905, largely because of the immigration and settlement um, labor dynamics, it it it's by far the most educated area in Canada when it comes to things like you know computer software developers, uh, other types of system designers, you know network application specialists, engineers, health sciences, healthcare, pharmaceuticals. Um, all kinds of other IT areas. We've literally, like, we've got the world's best from places like India and China and the Middle East and Africa and Europe and whatnot. And 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 are we making decisions about the 905? You want to use land use for things like the high, the 413 highway. You want to you want to yeah. give these developers carte blanche, you know, to just build a, a bunch of crap, you know, yeah. and sprawl yeah. and more intermodal transportation companies and warehouses and Amazon fulfillment centers. You know what, if you were smart, 
And I give credit to someone like Hazel McCallion, not a big fan of hers, never was, never will be. But, you know, one thing that, you know, she did fairly well was she let the people in Mississauga who knew what they were doing, wasn't her, but <laughs> the Jackies of the world and the Martin Powells of the world and a lot of other great staff who said, you know what, we should be attracting Fortune 500 companies. We bring in all of that type of employment. Our, our revenue base goes through the roof because now you've got a labor force who's buying expensive mm-hmm. properties. There's demand for high-end property. There's demand now for all kinds of other um, you know, consumer activities that people with those types of incomes you know, contribute to and that type of investment to support that type of economy and that type of consumer kind of landscape. And Mississauga has reaped the benefits. Like, you know, it's the one place. I mean, Vaughn's trying and with the city center and Markham has had stops and starts and it's doing decent. But Mississauga, it's a huge success story. And and it's because it, it said we've got a pretty cool city. We've got this waterfront that's being developed now, but we've got this amazing labor force and we have opportunity. If I've got land sitting there and I, am I going to, you know, I've got, let's say, 100 acres of land. Am I going to give it to a warehousing operation that's going to have trucks moving in and out mm-hmm. that it, that employs like, you know, 20 people per hectare and they make an average wage of like, you know, $16 an hour? Or am I going to like attract a, a, a corporate, you know, um, complex, a, a campus of corporate Fortune 500 companies where the average wage is like, you know, 150 grand a year and the property revenue that we get, the tax revenue that we get is 10 times greater and all that money that those people invest and put in, you know, to our local economy is going to be like, you know, significant to drive our growth. Which, which direction are you going to follow? I would also add, these are the the blind spots of the province right now. Well, I was also going to add in, you're you're going on about um, how we had new Canadians, immigrants coming into the region and how they were adding you know, their expertise and their, their, uh, their credibility and, and all that. I was going to add in, they're all, we're also having an untapped potential of entrepreneurship. Um, because the one thing I've noticed when you add immigrants to any community, the entrepreneurship just goes through the roof. There, there's that drive to build something, right? Uh, uh, they have a, uh, the, and I, I think, I mean, there's something that we've been talking about on, on our, our episodes, just, uh, that entrepreneurship and that need to develop a newer economy is going to be vital, especially past to recover this from this pandemic. We're going to need to tap into that, into those, into that resources, into that spirit to just think of new ways of doing business and new new products and services that we need for the 21st century economy. And it's you're right, it's all right here. It's in Mississauga, Brampton, Hamilton, Halton, Niagara, all that. Um, but do we have the do we have the political know-how and will to tap into it yeah and we just have a and, government and I would, and, and i'll just say this last thing and then i'll and then i'll probably have to wrap up but but joel like to take that point to just a little further you know, it's it's not even about the entrepreneurial spirit you know it's 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 also the opportunity and potential like like you said we're, we're moving into we've already been moving into our our information age and our digital age for the last 20 25 years but i think the pandemic has sped up a lot of that and a lot of it has to, is going to have to be driven by investment. And not that the government, either at the provincial level or, or, or level or a local level or the federal level, can't you know, reach out to foreign investment you know, on their own. But you know, you've got all of this opportunity where you've got all these stakeholders, like the skilled, the skilled workforce, like all the professionals that come in, you know, many of them, they've already worked for the big Fortune 500 companies. They've worked for the big tech startups giants they have connections with with singapore and malaysia and hong kong and 
Mumbai and Tokyo and, you know, you name it. Like, so where all of this capital investment and intellectual investment that could possibly come from the gateway for a lot of that, it's just sitting there. Like, like what region in the world has done a better job attracting? Because they all love our Canadian values. Everyone loves our Canadian lifestyle. They love what, what Canada has to offer them. And like you just said, Joel, we sit there and let it go to waste. It's a tragedy. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it really is. Well, I, I know you, you uh, have to get going. Uh, it's been a fantastic talk. Really appreciate it, Sam. And I hope we'll be able to chat again in the future because there's, there's no end of stuff to talk about uh, on this. And uh, you're doing fantastic work uh, at the Pointer recommend all our listeners go and check you out if they don't not already aware of you sign up for the podcast which is brilliant as well and uh yeah this this <laughs> the 905 stories are the most interesting stories going on certainly in ontario right now and uh, the fact that we have lacked the media to to give that any kind of coverage up until now is just uh, a tragedy but hopefully that's changing uh, with people well, like you can i give you an anecdote i'll just give you a quick anecdote so i don't want to name any names but a very, very high profile Canadian journalist uh, reaches out to me a while back and said, boy, San, I was scrolling down the pointer and the journalist said, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, you make Toronto news look so boring and predictable. <laughs> and, and, yeah. he, and, he, and, you know, this is like one of like the top shelf, like, you know, few, like among the few most, you know, most notable journalists in the country said, you know, I'm just blown away by what's what's going on in, in Peel. He didn't say the 905, but you could stretch that out across the 905. And yeah, I, I don't say that as a promotional thing. It, it, it's so people understand that these things are important. These issues, the reason why these things are very fluid, very dynamic, very interesting, very controversial is because they're hugely important. Our future depends on it. Like, again, I don't want to be on a soapbox for too long. I've already been on a soapbox for an hour here. <laughs> but my, what I would say is don't, don't turn around in 2025 years and say, oh boy, that's too bad. Back around 2020, 2021, if we had really paid attention to this, 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 and this, this, we wouldn't have that crappy 413 highway. We wouldn't have had more sprawl. Our green belt wouldn't have been destroyed. We wouldn't have like problems with like, you know, race you know, and other tensions, we wouldn't have like a loss of human capital, you know, all the problems that, you know, we're going to moan about in 2025 years. Let's make sure right now, we, we go in the right direction. So that conversation in 25 years is, wow, you remember around 2020, 2021, that period when when everything changed, and this this awesome kind of period of growth for Ontario, it all started back then. You know what? I think that's a great note to uh, attend the episode off on. So thank you very much, Son, for uh, coming on. And we'll hopefully stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thanks, Thanks, guys. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time.
Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. <laughs>